Hello and welcome to this Remote Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us from wherever you are. My name is Esther and it's good to be here with you today. So we've been in a sermon series entitled Eyes to See, where we've been looking at moments when Jesus sees events in a completely different way than anyone else present. And we've been asking, what does that show us about various topics? And today's topic is hypocrisy. We're going to look at how Jesus sees hypocrisy. Now, the passage we're going to study isn't one that's often used to preach on this topic. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. There are lots of other places where Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees more explicitly, but actually the story we're going to read today is brilliant because what it does is actually demonstrate what hypocrisy is, how it works in our lives, and also how we can deal with it. It shows us the definition of hypocrisy, the deceit of hypocrisy, and the defeat of hypocrisy. Let's look at those three things now, its definition, deceit, and defeat. The story of the woman caught in adultery is found in John chapter 8, and it bears mentioning that this passage may come in brackets in your Bible because it was likely not included in the earliest copies of John, but regardless of where it belongs or even who wrote it, all the scholars agree that it is an eyewitness account of a story that actually happened. So first, let's look at the definition of hypocrisy by reading the first half of our story beginning in John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he, that's Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The word Pharisee means separated ones. They saw themselves as separated from the sinfulness of the masses because of their adherence to the law, which they saw as the way to God. They were the largest and most influential religious political party in New Testament times, and they hated Jesus because he claimed to be God and because he hung out with, quote, unclean sinners, the very people the Pharisees saw themselves as separated from. They're looking for a way to publicly discredit Jesus and here they found something rare. You might notice that the phrase caught in adultery is repeated twice here for emphasis. That's because it pretty much never happened. Even though the Mosaic law was severe in its penalties, it was extremely just in its laws of evidence. For capital crimes like adultery, not just one, but two or three witnesses had to actually see the sex act happen. It was not enough for it to be implied. It was not enough to see two people, say, leaving a room together or even lying in the same bed. They had to literally be caught in the act. This was so rare that being stoned for adultery didn't often happen in Jesus' day. Yet the Pharisees say they have caught this woman in the act, and now they ask Jesus in front of the crowd, do we stone her or not? It's a brilliant trap. On one hand, if Jesus says, don't kill her, then he would be violating the written Mosaic law found in Deuteronomy 22.22, which states that the penalty for adultery is death. 
But on the other hand, if he says stone the woman, he would be supporting a position that was largely unpopular and rarely actually carried out. He would be discrediting his reputation as one who cared for sinners, and it was this quality, by the way, about Jesus that so drew people to him and so annoyed the Pharisees. And lastly, he may have gotten into trouble with the Romans, because at that time, only the Roman prefect had the authority to impose capital sentences. So here's the problem, according to the Pharisees. Is it law or grace? You can't have both. Which is it, Jesus? And the first hint we have that Jesus is seeing this situation entirely differently from the Pharisees is his verbal response. He doesn't pick law or grace. That's not the problem he sees. What does he see? Well, when he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone, he is making a direct reference to three other places in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13.9, 17.7, and 19.15, which say that the witnesses of the crime must be the first to throw the stones and they must not be participants in the crime or have malicious intent. On the most literal level, Jesus is saying to these experts of the law, look, if you want to follow the law, which you surely know, let's follow all of it. And by saying that, he casts light on a lot of fishy things. For one thing, the timing of such a rare thing as catching this woman in the act have led many to speculate that there was likely some kind of setup which would indicate malicious intent. We don't know. But either way, there's the question I'm sure most of you are asking, where is the man? There's no such thing as adultery where only one party is guilty. It's not a sin you can commit in isolation. And if you read the law the Pharisees are citing, the man is mentioned almost more than the woman. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Look, either the man was part of the setup, or he managed to or was allowed to run away, or they're making it all up. Point is, if this had really happened, if they truly cared about the law, they would have been just as diligent in prosecuting the man as the woman. But at that time, a double standard when it came to adultery was common. And in addressing his reply to a room full of men, Jesus is calling that out. He sees that their real problem is hypocrisy. What is the definition of hypocrisy? It is claiming a moral standard or belief to which one's own behavior does not conform. Giving an outward impression that's not consistent with the inward way one lives. The Pharisees appear to care about the law, but in reality, they're just using the law for their own purposes. Small children can get like this, right? When they complain about something not being fair, what they usually mean is, it's not fair for me. They're usually not saying, mommy, my piece of cake is so much bigger than theirs. It's not fair. That's all of us to some degree, right? We act one way at church, but another way at home, because we care more about the impression we give others of our spirituality, perhaps, than how we are perceived by God. We may have good doctrine and values in public, but then we go home and our kids see us gossiping or slandering or living with different values. We may elevate some commandments in the Bible, but avoid others because we care more about what's convenient for us or our culture than about the actual holiness of God. 
And one thing this story shows us is that hypocrisy often manifests in judgment. Something about those two go together. Maybe because there's something in us that's programmed for self-righteousness, believing not only that we're right, but that we're self-righteous, we're more right than that other person. And then the more we elevate ourselves in judgment over them, the more it feeds our sense of superiority and masks the inner truth about ourselves. Judgment and hypocrisy feed into each other. It becomes easy to judge someone for, like in this story, some visible moral failure while indulging in the same impulses ourselves when no one's watching. It becomes easy to judge others for their actions while judging ourselves for our intentions. These inconsistencies are everywhere. And it's something that the church has to be especially cognizant of. I don't think it's an accident that the people Jesus most calls out for hypocrisy are the religious elite, the institutional majority. It's easy for us to mistake outward ritual programs or doctrine for an inward spiritual life when they may not equate. But other people can tell, and it's one reason people can't stomach religion. They see Christians doing things like the Pharisees do here, touting the law but not actually living it out, elevating certain codes of conduct over others, or caring more about power, money, influence, or image than about loving other people. So Jesus is defining hypocrisy here, claiming a standard or belief to which your own behavior does not conform. Secondly, let's look at the deceit of hypocrisy. If you had gone to ancient Greece and asked, where are the hypocrites? They would have pointed to the stage. The word hypocrisy refers to actors who wore different masks to indicate the different roles that they played on stage, to people who put on an external show, while inwardly their true thoughts and feelings might be very different. Like a mask, hypocrisy deceives. That's part of how it works. And it not only deceives others, it also deceives us. Very few of us consciously decide to be hypocrites, yet nearly all of us are. We tend to be blind to our own hypocrisy, to our own inconsistencies, to the reality of our own motives. And that's what makes it such a dangerous sin. It starts off hidden and it likes to stay that way. In Paradise Lost, John Milton called hypocrisy the only evil that walks invisible except to God. That's why Jesus seeing hypocrisy here is so important. He's not only defining it, but he's showing us how to bring it out into the light. Let's see what he shows us about how to do that. By going back to our story, we'll backtrack to verse 6 of John chapter 8 and read a little further on this time. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. We've talked about what Jesus said, but that wasn't his first response to the Pharisees. The first thing he does is quite strange. He bends down and starts doodling in the dirt. Everyone wants to know, what is he writing? There are lots of theories out there, but the bottom line is that we don't know. The author doesn't tell us, which can only mean one thing. We don't need to know. The main point is not what he's writing as much as the fact that he is, that he's doing something which contrasts so remarkably with what the Pharisees are doing. 
The Pharisees purposely seek a public scene, but Jesus does something secret, at least secret to us. The Pharisees have elevated themselves over this woman, but the first thing Jesus does is stoop down to a position of lowliness. The Pharisees continue to press him urgently for a response, but Jesus, other than his one statement, is largely silent, and he takes his time. Hypocrisy always rushes to judge. It rushes to condemn. But Jesus takes his time. The temple space was big enough to hold over a hundred people. That's a lot of time waiting there for each of them to leave one by one. Jesus could have just listed out all their hypocrisies. He could have made the Pharisees sin as public as they made the woman sin. But he doesn't. His words, let those without sin throw the first stone, are not only a legal pointer, they are a prompt for reflection. Jesus gives them this prompt and then gives them time for self-examination. As an ophthalmologist, one of the surgeries I do are cataract surgeries, where you take out the cloudy lens inside someone's eye and replace it with a clear lens. More than once, I've had a patient tell me, doctor, there's a side effect you didn't warn me about. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, what? And they say, the surgery gave me all these wrinkles on my face. And I have to tell them, actually, those wrinkles were there before the surgery. Your vision just wasn't good enough to see them until now. Self-examination, or the spiritual practice some call the examine of conscience, is like that. It's seeing the things about us that are true, even if they're hard things to see. It's becoming intentionally aware of our own sins and inconsistencies. How do we do this? We come into the presence of God and ask him to show us. What we're doing is not a self-inventory that leads to shame or paralyzing self-hatred. If that happens, you know it's not from God. Listen to what Adele Calhoun writes. Self-examination is a process whereby the Holy Spirit opens my heart to what is true about me. This is not the same thing as a neurotic, shame-inducing inventory. Instead, it is a way of opening myself to God within the safety of divine love so I can authentically seek transformation. Confession embraces Christ's gift of forgiveness and restoration while settling us on the path to renewal and change. What's happening here? We are secure in God's love and open ourselves to him. Then he shows us the layers of our sin. Then we respond with confession. In our story, each person who walked away gave what amounted to a public confession of sin. It was not just a private admission. There was an element of public acknowledgement. Confession is when we tell the honest truth about our sins to God or others. And because hypocrisy is such a hidden sin, because it thrives on deceit, being honest in this way is so important. There's a power that sin has over us when it stays in the dark, a power that it loses when we're willing to bring those things into the light. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. It isn't enough to think it or write it down. There's healing in verbally confessing it. There are three types of confession, personal, when I confess to God, interpersonal, when I confess to a trusted friend or the person I've offended, and corporate, when we confess together as a congregation during worship. It's healthy to practice all three of these. And I don't know about you, but I've always found that the second one, interpersonal confession, is the hardest for me to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote something about this that's always stayed with me. He writes, 
Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to the holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. Our brother breaks the circle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. If I feel resistance to the idea of confessing to another person, then maybe what I'm really doing is just confessing to myself to make myself feel better. I'm giving myself absolution. I haven't truly examined myself in God's presence. There is one place in the Bible where Jesus talks about seeing together with hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice Jesus is not saying we should ignore the speck in others' eyes. He's not saying we should never bring up sin in someone else's life. He's saying there's a prerequisite for doing that. First, we need to examine ourselves so that we can see more clearly how to help others. We ought never address sin in others without reckoning ourselves as sinners forgiven. So the next time you're tempted to pick up a stone against someone, The next time you feel that rush of judgment, that rush of anger, stop, pause, ask yourself, what bothers me so much about this person? And then ask, is there some similar inner compulsion in myself? Are my motives pure or are they mingled with selfishness or pride? We may find in the end that the sin we so easily see in other people is actually a kind of grace for us because it's God's way of helping us see the same sins in ourselves with a clarity or a depth that we might not otherwise have had. We've talked about the definition of hypocrisy and the deceit of hypocrisy, but the story doesn't end there. Jesus ultimately shows us how to defeat hypocrisy in our lives. Let's finish our story now, beginning in verse 9. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus' words to the woman here are the same words he speaks to us who are hypocrites. After all, in this story, the woman is experiencing what every hypocrite fears most, right? We fear that our secret sins are exposed in front of everyone, and that's exactly what happens to her. She's been standing there this whole time, probably in some state of undress or dishevelment, knowing that at any moment someone might pick up a stone. Jesus didn't actually tell them not to. She's been waiting until finally only Jesus is left. Jesus is the only true anti-hypocrite, the only one who never taught anything he did not himself perfectly exemplify. 
He was the only person in that entire place, the only person in the entire universe who was qualified to throw a stone. And not only that, he's also the only true hypocrisy seer. He alone has the superpower of seeing through all of our layers. He sees everything that we do, think, or feel all of the time. He calls what this woman did a sin, just like he sees every single one of our sins. And here he finally gives his answer to the Pharisees' original question, neither do I condemn you. How can he say this without violating Mosaic law? There's a detail in this chapter I never noticed until recently. The very last verse in John chapter 8 is this. So they, the Jews, picked up stones to throw at him, that's Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The chapter begins with the Jews wanting to stone this woman. And it ends with the Jews wanting to stone Jesus. Jesus is saying here, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Now go and sin no more. The order there matters. It's always grace first, then behavior. If you put behavior first, that's just moral legalism. But put grace first, and that's the gospel. The gospel is what defeats hypocrisy. See, hypocrisy feeds on the secret belief that we must sin no more and then we won't be condemned. And as we fail to meet that standard, there comes to be a bigger and bigger disparity between our claimed beliefs and our true behavior. The solution is not just to try harder or to keep up outward appearances. The solution is to change the order, to see that it begins with grace, that it's precisely when we're standing there in our failures like the woman is, that Jesus looks us in the eye and says, I see everything about you, but I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. When you experience grace like that, it changes you in a way that the law never can. It frees you from the desire to sin, not because you have to make yourself acceptable, but because you already are accepted. Because hypocrisy is something we continually fall into, the gospel is something we must continually preach to ourselves. Someone once said, the gospel is not only the diving board, but the swimming pool. Once you launch from the gospel into the Christian life, each movement you make takes you not further away from it, but deeper into it. The gospel is not just the starting point, it's where you're going. Growth and change happens not on the other side of it, but right in the middle of it. We've seen that the definition of hypocrisy is espousing a standard to which your own behavior does not consistently conform. We've seen that the deceit of hypocrisy requires intentional self-examination to combat. And we've seen that it all leads to the defeat of hypocrisy through the gospel, the truth that the way to God is not through standards, but through grace. The law matters, but grace must always come first. Psalm 51 says, You delight in truth in the inward being. King David wrote those words after he committed adultery and hypocrisy. You delight in truth in the inward being. Create in me a clean heart, O God. What stones are you carrying today? Who are you judging? What standards are you holding yourself and others to? What does it mean to see your own hypocrisy, to experience God's grace, and to lay those stones down? Let's pray. 
God, we ask for the courage to take an unfiltered look at ourselves. When we find it easy to judge other people, give us instead the ability to stop and examine ourselves within your loving gaze. Shine the light of your truth into our inward being so that we may see ourselves as you do. Make us a people and a church that models confession, that knows deeply the forgiving and empowering grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.